0: Chapter twenty six of the life and adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An unexpected meeting and a promising prospect. The laws of sympathy between beards and birds, and the secret source of that attraction which frequently impels a shaver of the one to be a dealer in the other, are questions for the subtle reasoning of scientific bodies, not the less so because their investigation, would seem calculated to lead to no particular result. It is enough to know that the artist who had the honour of entertaining Mrs. Gamp as his 1st floor lodger united the two pursuits of barbering and bird-fancying, and that it was not an original idea of his, but one in which he had dispersed about the by-streets and suburbs of the town a host of rivals. The name of the housekeeper was Paul Sweedlepipe, but he was commonly called Paul Sweedlepipe and was not uncommonly believed to have been so christened among his friends and neighbours. With the exception of the staircase and his lodger's private apartment, Pol Sweedlepipe's house was one great bird's nest. Gamecocks resided in the kitchen, pheasants wasted the brightness of their golden plumage on the garret, bantams roosted in the cellar, owls had possession of the bedroom and specimens of all the smaller fry of birds chirruped and twittered in the shop. The staircase was sacred to rabbits. There in hutches of all shapes and kinds, made from old packing-cases, boxes, drawers and tea-chests, they increased in a prodigious degree, and contributed their share towards that complicated whiff, which, quite impartially and without distinction of persons, saluted every nose that was put into Sweedlepipe's easy-shaving shop. Many noses found their way there for all that, especially on Sunday morning before church-time. Even archbishops shave, or must be shaved, on a Sunday, and beards will grow after twelve o'clock on Saturday night, though it be upon the chins of base mechanics, who, not being able to engage their valets by the quarter, hire them by the job, and pay them, oh the wickedness of copper coin, in dirty pence. Paul Sweedlepipe, the sinner, shaved all comers at a penny each, and cut the hair of any customer for tuppence and being a lone unmarried man, and having some connection in the bird-line, Paul got on tolerably well. He was a little elderly man, with a clammy cold right hand, from which even rabbits and birds could not remove the smell of shaving-soap. Paul had something of the bird in his nature, not of the hawk or eagle, but of the sparrow, that builds in chimney-stacks and inclines to human company. He was not quarrelsome, though like the sparrow, but peaceful like the dove. In his walk he strutted, and in this respect he bore a faint resemblance to the pigeon, as well as in certain prosiness of speech, which might, in its monotony, be linked to the cooing of that bird. He was very inquisitive, and when he stood at his shop-door in the evening-tide, watching the neighbours with his head on one side, and his eye cocked knowingly, there was a dash of the raven in him. Yet there was no more wickedness in poll than in a robin. Happily, too when any of his ornithological properties were on the verge of going too far, they were quenched, dissolved, melted down, and neutralized in the barber, just as his bald head, otherwise as the head of a shaved magpie, lost itself in a wig of curly black ringlets, parted on one side, and cut away almost to the crown, to indicate immense capacity of intellect. Paul had a very small, shrill, treble voice, which might have led the wags of Kingsgate Street to insist the more upon his feminine designation. He had a tender heart too, for when he had a good commission to provide three or four score sparrows for a shooting-match, he would observe in a compassionate tone how singular it was that sparrows should have been made expressly for such purposes. The question whether men were made to shoot them never entered Pole's philosophy. Pole wore in his sporting character a velveteen coat a great deal of blue stocking and ankle-boots, a neckerchief and some bright colour, and a very tall hat. Pursuing his more quiet occupation of barber, he generally subsided into an apron not over-clean, a flannel jacket and corduroy knee-shorts. It was in this latter costume, but with his apron girded round his waist, as a token of his having shut up shop for the night, that he closed the door one evening, some weeks after the occurrences detailed in the last chapter, and stood upon the steps in kingsgate street listening until the little cracked bell within should leave off ringing for until it did this was mr sweedlepipe's reflection the place never seemed quiet enough to be left to itself it's the greediest little bell to ring said Paul. that ever was but it's quiet at last he rolled his apron up a little tighter as he said these words and hastened down the street just as he was turning into holborn he ran against a young gentleman in livery this youth, was bold, though small, and with several lively expressions of displeasure, turned upon him instantly. "'Now, stupid!' cried the young gentleman. "'Can't you look where you're a going to? Eh? Can't you mind where you're a-comin' to? Eh? What do you think your eyes was made for? Ah, yes, oh! Oh, now then!' The young gentleman pronounced the last two words in a very loud tone, and with frightful emphasis, as though they contained within themselves the essence of direst aggravation. But he had scarcely done so, when his anger yielded to surprise, and he cried in a milder tone, "'What, Polly?' Why well, it ain't you sure,' cried Polly. "'It can't be you.' "'No, it ain't me,' returned the youth. "'It's my son, my oldest one. He's a credit to his father, any he, Polly?' With this delicate little piece of banter, he halted on the pavement, and went round and round in circles for the better exhibition of his figure, rather to the inconvenience of the passengers generally, who were not in an equal state of spirits with himself i wouldn't have believed it said poll what you've left your old place then have you have i returned his young friend who had by this time stuck his hands into the pockets of his white cord breeches and was swaggering along at the barber's side do you know a pair of top-boots when you see em polly look here beautiful cried mr sweedlepipe do you know a slap-up sort of button when you see it said the youth don't look at mine if you ain't a judge because these lion's heads was made for men of taste not snobs beautiful cried the barber again a grass-green frock-coat too bound with gold and a cockade in your hat i should hope so too replied the youth blow the cockade though it's like the ventilator later that used to be in the kitchen at todgers ain't seen the old lady's name in the gazette have you no returned the barber is she a bankrupt if she ain't she will be retorted bailey that business can never be carried on without me well how are you oh i'm pretty well said poll are you living at this end of the town or were you coming to see me? Was that the business that brought you to Holborn? I haven't got no business in Holborn, returned Bailey, with some displeasure. All my business lays at the West End. I've got the right sort of governor now. You can't see his face for his whiskers. You can't see his whiskers for the dye upon em That's a gentleman, ain't it? You wouldn't like a ride in a cab, would you? Why, well, it wouldn't be safe to offer it. You'd faint away, only to see me coming at a mild trot round the corner. To convey a slight idea of the effect of this approach, Mr. Bailey counterfeited in his own person the action of a high-trotting horse, and threw his head so high in backing up against a pump that it shook his hat off. Why, he's own uncle to Capricorn, said Bailey, and brother to cauliflower. He's been through the windows of two Chinese shops since we've had him, and was sold for killing his missus. That's a horse, I hope. Ah, you'll never want to buy any more red poles now, observed Pole, looking at his young friend with an air of melancholy you'll never want to buy any more red poles now to hang up over the sink will you i should think not replied bailey rather so i wouldn't have nothing to say to any bird below a peacock and he'd be vulgar. well how are you oh i'm pretty well said poll he answered the question again because mr bailey asked it again mr bailey asked it again because accompanied with a straddling action of the white cords a bend of the knees and a striking forth of the top-boots it was an easy horse fleshy turfy sort of thing to do what are you up to old fellow added mr bailey with the same graceful rakishness he was quite the man about town of the conversation while the easy shaver was the child why i am going to fetch my lodger home said paul a woman for a twenty-pound note the little barber hastened to explain that she was neither a young woman nor a handsome woman but a nurse who had been acting as a kind of housekeeper to a gentleman for some weeks past and left her place that night in consequence of being superseded by another and more legitimate housekeeper to wit the gentleman's bride he's newly married and he brings his young wife home to-night said the barber so i'm going to fetch my lodger away mr chuzzlewit's close behind the post-office and carry her box for her jonas chuzzlewit said bailey ah returned paul that's the name sure enough do you know him not at all and i don't know her not neither why, they first kept company through me, almost. Eh? said Paul. Ah! said Mr. Bailey with a wink. And she ain't bad-looking, mind you, but her sister was the best. She was the merry one. I often used to have a bit of fun with her in the old times. Mr. Bailey spoke as if he already had a leg and three-quarters in the grave, and that this had happened twenty or thirty years ago. Paul Sweedlepipe, the meek, was so perfectly confounded by his precocious self-possession and his patronizing manner, as well as by his boots, cockade, and livery, that a mist swam before his eyes, and he saw not the Bailey of acknowledged juvenility from Todger's commercial boarding house, who had made his acquaintance within twelve months, by purchasing at sundry times small birds at tuppence each, but a highly condensed embodiment of all the sporting grooms in London, an abstract of all the stable knowledge of the time, a something at a high pressure that must have had existence many years, and was fraught with terrible experiences and truly though in the cloudy atmosphere of todgers mr bailey's genius had ever shone out brightly in this particular respect it now eclipsed both time and space cheated beholders of their senses and worked on their belief in defiance of all natural laws he walked along the tangible and real stones of holborn hill an undersized boy yet he winked the winks and thought the thoughts and did the deeds and said the sayings of an ancient man there was an old principle within him and a young surface without he became an inexplicable creature a breached and booted sphinx there was no course open to the barber but to go distracted himself or take bailey for granted and he wisely chose the latter mr bailey was good enough to continue to bear him company and to entertain him as they went with easy conversation on various sporting topics especially on the comparative merits, as a general principle, of horses with white stockings and horses without. In regard to the style of tail to be preferred, Mr. Bailey had opinions of his own, which he explained, but begged that they might by no means influence his friends, as here he knew he had the misfortune to differ from some excellent authorities. He treated Mr. Sweedlepipe to a dram, compounded agreeably to his own directions which he informed him had been invented by a member of the jockey club and as they were by this time near to the barber's destination he observed that as he had an hour to spare and knew the parties he would if quite agreeable be introduced to mrs gamp paul knocked at jonas Chuzzlewit's, and on the door being opened by that lady made the two distinguished persons known to one another it was a happy feature in mrs gamp's twofold profession that it gave her an interest in everything that was young as well as in everything that was old, she received Mr. Bailey with much kindness. "'It's very good, I'm sure, of you to come,' she said to her landlord, "'as well as being so nice a friend. But I'm afraid that I must trouble you so far as to step in, for the young couple have not yet made an appearance.' "'They're late, aren't they?' inquired her landlord, when she had conducted them downstairs into the kitchen. "'Well, sir, considering the wings of love, they are,' said Mrs. Gamp, mr bailey inquired whether the wings of love had ever won a plate or could be backed to do anything remarkable and being informed that it was not a horse but merely a poetical or figurative expression evinced considerable disgust mrs gamp was so very much astonished by his affable manners and great ease that she was about to propound to her landlord in a whisper the staggering inquiry whether he was a man or a boy when mr sweedlepipe anticipating her design made a timely diversion he knows mr chuzzlewit said paul aloud there's nothing he don't know that's my opinion observed mrs gamp all the wickedness of the world is print to him mr bailey received this as a compliment and said adjusting his cravat rather so as you knows mr chuzzlewit you knows perhaps what her christen names is mrs gamp observed charity said bailey that it ain't cried mrs gamp cherry then said bailey "'Cherry's short for it all the same.' "'It don't begin with a C at all,' retorted Mrs. Gamp, shaking her head. "'It begins with a M M.' "'Phew!' cried Mr. Bailey, slapping a little cloud of pipe-clay out of his left leg. "'Then he's been and married the merry one!' All these words were mysterious. Mrs. Gamp called upon him to explain, which Mr. Bailey proceeded to do, that lady listening greedily to everything he said. He was yet in the fullness of his narrative— when the sound of wheels and a double-knock at the street-door announced the arrival of the newly-married couple. Begging him to reserve what more he had to say for her hearing on the way home, Mrs. Gamp took up the candle and hurried away to receive and welcome the young mistress of the house. "'Wishing you happiness and joy with all my heart,' said Mrs. Gamp, dropping a curtsey as they entered the hall. "'And you too, sir. Your lady looks a little tired with the journey, Mr. Chuzzlewit, but a pretty dear.' "'She's bothered enough about it,' grumbled Mr. Jonas. "'Show a light now, will you?' "'This way, ma'am, if you please,' said Mrs. Gamp, going upstairs before them. "'Things has been made comfortable as they could be, but there's many things you'll have to alter your own self when you gets time to look about you. "'Ah, sweet thing! But you don't,' added Mrs. Gamp, internally, "'you don't look much like a merry one, I must say.' It was true she did not. The death that had gone before the bridal seemed to have left its shade upon the house. The air was heavy and oppressive, the rooms were dark, A deep gloom filled up every chink and corner. Upon the hearthstone, like a creature of ill omen, sat the aged clerk, with his eyes fixed on some withered branches in the stove. He rose and looked at her. So there you are, Mr. Chuff, said Jonas carelessly, as he dusted his boots. Still in the land of the living, eh? Still in the land of the living, sir, retorted Mrs. Gamp and Mr. Chuffey may thank you for it, sir, as many and many a time I've told him. Mr. Jonas was not in the best of humours, for he merely said, as he looked round, We don't want you any more, you know, Mrs. Gamp. I'm a-going immediate, sir, returned the nurse. Unless there's nothing I can do for you, ma'am, ain't there? said Mrs. Gamp, with a look of great sweetness, and rummaging all the time in her pocket. Ain't there nothing I can do for you, my little bird? No, said Mary, almost crying. You'd better go away, please. With a leer of mingled sweetness and slyness, with one eye on the future, one on the bride, and an arch expression in her face, partly spiritual, partly spiritous, and wholly professional and peculiar to her art, Mrs. Gamp rummaged in her pocket again, took from it a printed card, whereon was an inscription copied from her signboard. "'Will you be so good, my darling dovey of a dear young married lady?' Mrs. Gamp observed in a low voice as put that somewheres where you can keep it in your mind i am well known to many ladies and it's my card gamp is my name and gamp my nater living quite handy I will make so bold as to call in now and then and make inquiry to how your health and spirits is my precious chick and with innumerable leers winks coughs nods smiles and curtsies, all leading to the establishment of a mysterious and confidential understanding between herself and the bride mrs gamp, invoking a blessing upon the house, leered, winked, coughed, nodded, smiled, and curtsied herself out of the room. But I will say, and I would if I was led a Martha to the stakes for it, Mrs. Gamp remarked below stairs, in a whisper, as she don't look much like a merry one at this present moment of time. And I'll wait till you hear her laugh, said Bailey. h mm, cried Mrs. Gamp in a kind of a groan. I will, child. They said no more in the house, for Mrs. Gamp put on her bonnet mr sweedlepipe took up her box, and mr Bailey accompanied them towards Kingsgate Street, recounting to mrs Gamp as they went along the origin and progress of his acquaintance with mrs Chuzzlewit and her sister. It was a pleasant instance of this youth's precocity, that he fancied mrs Gamp had conceived a tenderness for him, and was much tickled by her misplaced attachment. As the door closed heavily behind them, mrs Jonas sat down in a chair, and felt a strange chill creep upon her. Whilst she looked about the room, it was pretty much as she had known it, but appeared more dreary. She had thought to see it brightened to receive her. "'It ain't good enough for you, I suppose,' said Jonas, watching her looks. "'Why, it is dull,' said Mary, trying to be more herself. "'It'll be duller afore you're done with it,' retorted Jonas, "'if you give me any of your airs. You're a nice article to turn sulky on first coming home. It kind You used to have life enough when you could plague me with it. "'The gals downstairs. Ring the bell for supper while I take my boots off.' She roused herself from looking after him as he left the room, to do what he desired, when the old man Chuffey laid his hand softly on her arm. "'You're not married?' he said eagerly. "'Not married?' "'Yes, a month ago. Good heaven, what is the matter?' He answered, nothing was the matter, and turned from her, but in her fear and wonder turning also, she saw him raise his trembling hands above his head, and heard him say— Oh, woe, woe, woe upon this wicked house! It was her welcome home. End of chapter 26